this afternoon, I want to explore the um, one issue that I think is central to building Jewish culture, <coughs> in particular in America, that will be our, our focus at the end, but, um, but in general, what Jewish culture could look like and has looked like. Uh, so the focus that I want to uh, I want to spend our time on is the Hebrew language. And I think it's, it's fair to say that historically, there's never been a vibrant Jewish culture without an intensive knowledge of and use of the Hebrew language. And of course, that doesn't mean that everyone has used or no, known Hebrew in the past, uh, but that when we look at flourishing eras of Jewish culture, and you can really think of any era that you uh, think of as a productive era of Jewish culture, and there have been a, many, which is wonderful. Uh, I happen right now to be in the middle in a class, uh, an undergraduate class, dealing with Golden Age Spain, which is just an astoundingly productive and fruitful era for a couple of hundred years. It's a bilingual culture. There's, they're writing as much in Arabic as they are in Hebrew, but their mastery of Hebrew is just astounding. Uh, it's not just that they write dictionaries and grammar books of Hebrew, and uh, but they're also writing poetry in Hebrew, mm. exactly. The same people who are writing love poetry and wine poetry in Arabic are also doing the same thing in Hebrew. And of course that comes with all sorts of, uh, of innovations and it comes with all sorts of cultural clashes because anything that's innovative will uh, immediately yield clashes and that's something that uh, we'll actually spend a bit of time on this afternoon. But, um, but it's hard to imagine that the culture would be productive without that knowledge of Hebrew. It could be productive as a culture, but not as a Jewish culture. So I'll say right up front that, um, that I, I am concerned about the American Jewish community because it's increasingly distanced from the Hebrew language. Uh, so we can talk more about that at the end, about the ways in which the American Jewish community has at certain points over the last century uh, actually used Hebrew intensively. But even in the Orthodox day schools, um, and I, I speak as someone who sees many graduates uh, of those Orthodox day schools coming to Yeshiva University, uh, there is some level of Hebrew knowledge, but it's not the, the type that allows for serious interaction with texts from the, from the Jewish heritage uh, in a prolonged way. So that's something that we'll come back to. I want to come back to that, but I want to put that on the table. That's why I'm interested in the subject right now. Um, so we're going to talk, we're going to now take a detour and, uh, and look at what I think is actually a key question underlying this issue, uh, which is, I'll say, uh, the question of the sanctity of the Hebrew language. So Jews have always talked about Hebrew as a sacred, sacred language, always for at least documented uh, 2,200 years or so. Uh, we have the earliest text that actually calls it Lashon HaKodesh, sacred language. Uh, the earliest text that uses that phrase is from Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and of course, all of rabbinic literature talks about Hebrew as sacred in all sorts of different ways. Uh, so for a very long time, the Jews have thought of it as a sacred language. But what does it mean to be a sacred language? There's, uh, there's different ways that Jews have understood that, which in turn yields very different ways of thinking about how Hebrew ought to operate in a Jewish society. So what I'd actually like to do, um, you have to tell me if this is feasible, but what I'd like to do is to actually give you some sources and spend the first 10 minutes asking you to read two, relatively long, not more than a page, uh, sources 
Um, uh, very ironically, uh, they're both in English. <laughs> but um, for the one that's originally in Hebrew, you have the Hebrew next to it. So we can pass this around. The other one was originally German. And that's not a traditionally sacred Jewish language anyway. So, uh, <laughs> a long time ago, when I was actually studying German, uh, a sister-in-law of mine saw that I was, had German flashcards, and she said, that's an anti-Semitic language. And I was like, what language isn't anti-Semitic? <laughs> By the standards of that. Um, so the two, sources, the two first sources that you have uh, on the first page are excerpts from an actually very long letter from Rav Shalom Ber Schneerson, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, a letter he wrote in 1916. So the fact that 1916 is in the middle of World War I is irrelevant to this letter. Uh, what is relevant to this letter is that it's, it's well before World War II, and obviously well before there was a state of Israel. Uh, so he's thinking about uh, Zionism and Israel in the way that many Orthodox, and especially ultra-Orthodox Jews, thought about it before the events of the 30s and 40s, which, of course, uh, changed the way most, although not all, Jews thought about the state of Israel. Uh, so that's the first, that's the first source. Uh, I'll ask you to read through that in Hebrew or English. This is, this is written in Hebrew. And, of course, that's worth saying, because he's a Hasidish Rebbe in, in Eastern Europe, uh, is able to write Hebrew. This is, and that's something that we have to think about. I want to come back to it. I think it's actually ironic, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Then on the top of the second page, you have uh, two short paragraphs from Franz Rosenzweig. Uh, Rosenzweig was, uh, in a lot of ways, as far away from the Fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe as possible, <laughs> ideologically. And yet, he's also thinking about the sanctity of the Hebrew language and thinking about building a Jewish culture through the Hebrew language. So this was... Um, uh, this is written, I think, in the 20s, early 20s, so uh, not so far apart in time, but really very, very far apart in cultural worlds. Uh, and I'll say, this is what I, what I think of as a sort of unconscious debate between uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rosenzweig. Unconscious, they both know what they're saying, but neither of them really has any idea that the other person is saying the opposite. Uh, we have no reason to think that either of them is reading the other. Certainly the Rebbe is not reading Rosenzweig, uh, and Rosenzweig, who is uh, very far from uh, contemporary Orthodox Judaism, uh, was, I, I can't be 100% sure, but we have no reason to think that he was reading anything that the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote. So, so if it's okay, let's take 10 minutes or so, and just uh, maybe with the person next to you or on your own, uh, it is in English, I just read through essentially the first page and a half here, the Rebbe's letter, and then Rosenzweig's short paragraph. And then we'll come back to discuss this. Let's come to these texts. So, so uh, let me ask the question as follows. Where, where is it that Rosenzweig and Rabbi Schneerson diverge? They have such different visions here. What is the point that they most fundamentally disagree about? Uh, so I was kind of expecting one of them to say that it was Hebrew is sacred and the other say it's not sacred. But they both think it's sacred. Just that one of them thinks that its sacredness is uh, in its reservation for only uses, and the other thinks that sacredness is an extra function of the living tongue of the Jewish people. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful, great. So what's Rabbi Schneerson's concern in this letter? What's he actually worried about? Uh, 
Colloquial language. No, what were you saying? What I thought he was saying was that he didn't want it just to become a language for a new land. Yeah. Not not remain as a sacred language. It won't be a sacred language language anymore, right? Because it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be like a regular language. Right? Now, what would Rosenzweig say to that? So Hebrew, Hebrew, you can't use it for like football because mm-hmm. it's going to be a regular language. Let's talk about it. Said that's never really how it was used throughout history, right? Because mm-hmm. it was used. That is history. true. But is he going to be worried about it? No. What would you no. say? He's he's uh, expressing that it is big enough to encompass all of those things. Yeah, great. So let it be used for football. Let it be used. For, I would say, yeah, please. Yeah, Oh, yeah. And the Ashkenazi languages and the languages. How do we how the, but absolutely right. You're certainly right. Hebrew was, first of all, an older language. And then it is absolutely correct, and this is really very interesting, that many, not all, but many Jewish communities over the past couple of thousand years developed a distinctively Jewish dialect that was not Hebrew, that was based on the language of the surrounding culture, but was actually distinctively Jewish. Right? They didn't simply adopt that language, but we have Judeo-Arabic, which is different from other Arabic. We have Yiddish, we have Ladino, and we actually have um, Judeo-Italian. There's all about uh, 25 languages that I know of that are documented and studied as Jewish languages over the past couple of thousand years. Uh, it could even start earlier with Jewish Aramaic. All the examples that Fans uh, Rosenzweig used, they all use, they all have words of other languages. I mean, if they quote Rashi, Rashi, Rashi had a lot of his things in French. I mean, right. uh, the other people had Greek words and, and uh, or other other yeah. other languages. And in fact, and if they say the primary fair, which was the Kaddish, was in Aramaic. So, mm. so I'm saying they 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 use both. They use. Yeah, and even in the sacred text, they use a lot of words from 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 Great point. Great point. Great point. I had to pass PhD exams in other languages. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's actually amazing how how many languages some Jewish communities were steeped in. That's actually really, it's sort of shocking, especially for Americans today, who you know were were Americans are not good on languages. Yeah. So okay, let's come back to Rosenzweig's debate. So Rosenzweig say, so you want to use uh, Hebrew for football? Okay, that doesn't bother me, because the sanctity of Hebrew language comes from the fact that it's used by Jews for Jewish culture. So you use it also for football, that's totally fine. That doesn't, that doesn't take it out of its sacral sta- status, right? Because, after all, I want you to note, what's he actually writing about here? Look at the title. The title of the essay is Classical and Modern Hebrew. A review of a translation into Hebrew of Spinoza's, of Spinoza's Ethics. Of right? Spinoza's Ethics... So Spinoza, first of all, was banned from the Jewish community, right? He was excommunicated from the Jewish community. And the ethics is totally not a religious or, or Jewish book at all. I mean, none of his books are Jewish, but, but ethics is not a religious book. It's not about religion at all. So, but Rosenzweig is arguing this is a high point in Jewish culture. We now have a Hebrew version of Spinoza's ethics. This is now part of the grand tradition of Hebrew literature of Jewish culture. 
Now, if Spinoza in Hebrew counts as Jewish, mm-hmm. then football in Hebrew also counts as Jewish. Right? This is totally fine. Why does Rabbi Schneerson not go along with him? I think it somehow contaminates it. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. You know why. <laughs> it does contaminate it. Because what makes Hebrew sacred, according to, to Rabbi Schneerson? It's only used for... Uh, it's no, not about no. the use. What actually makes it sacred? Why is Hebrew sacred? What do you say? Not the content. That, you, you guys are all too modern. That's the problem. It's the language God... It's literally God's language. Exactly. It's literally the divine language. Right? God wrote his book in Hebrew. Whether God naturally speaks Hebrew or not is hard to know. <laughs> but he literally wrote his book in Hebrew for Rabbi Shneerson, right? So if you're going to take the language that God wrote his book in and then talk about Spinoza or talk about football in it, that's a real affront to God's language. That really desacralizes it. It contaminates it, it profanes it. But Rosenzweig, Rosenzweig wouldn't buy any of that to begin with. Right? That, Hebrew is a sacred language, that's, as you said. That's, right? maybe, maybe surprising, but he takes the sanctity of Hebrew language actually very seriously. But it's not because of God, it's got nothing to do with it. Rosenzweig is not, is not religious, I mean he's religious in a deep way, but he's not, uh, not traditionally religious. Um, so he's not worried about whether God wrote his book in Hebrew or not. He is worried about the fact that Jews have always used Hebrew as their language of expression. So that should continue. If Jews want to write philosophy books, that should be in Hebrew. If Jews want to talk about sports, that should be in Hebrew. Whatever Jews do, let that be in Hebrew, and that just adds to the sanctity of Hebrew. This is the language of Jewish culture. These are totally different ideas of what it means to be a sacred language. So you're right, it's sort of surprising. It's not just, you know, yes, no, it's sacred, it's not sacred. It is sacred, but, but what does that mean? They diverge really radically from the very beginning, and then comes to very please. different, and then comes to very different uh, conclusions as to what they're worried about. I have a question, please. Um, that um, talking about Hebrew, keeping it the same as the past, but I've noticed that a lot of Americans they ignore Hebrew, they put it aside, and they focus more on English, and the Hebrew does they don't value Hebrew. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's uh, that's why I think this is a an important topic, because I think Rosenzweig is actually onto something very important. If we don't have Hebrew, I'm not sure what Jewish culture will look like, and that's what I would like to explore. So I want to get through one more quick point, and then we'll come back to the American question. I was just going to say I, I don't totally agree with that. Okay. Unfortunately, the way we teach in our yeshivot. We do not teach 12 years of, of he, and our children come out. They can't go to Israel and hold a conversation. Right. They can't understand. They, I don't agree with it. They can learn. Mm. You know, I, my grandchildren... When it works, it works. They work. Great. They don't Wonderful. That's but, it. But, but I don't think it's disregarded. Mm-hmm. I think they, if you don't have a use for something, even I speak fluid from the time I was a child, I don't use it and I lose it. Mm. And if you don't have a reason to use it, Sure. Lose Great. Great. So I'm not going to try to diagnose day schools right now, but I, I agree with you. We could think about Hebrew in different ways. We talk about textual yeah. facility or conversational facility, and then you could argue about which one would be more important or whether we could suffice with one, not the other. Honestly, if, if they did one or, or one of them well, I would be more than happy. Um, but uh, but let's, let's uh, rather than skipping to the American scene immediately, um, we're pretty short on time, so so I will um, I'll, I'll 
broach the topic of modern Israel. What happened in modern Israel? Modern Israel, of course, is where Hebrew flourishes, right? You said earlier, we have plenty of uh, Israelis wandering around the Upper West Side. How did it come to be that we suddenly have seven, eight million native speakers of Hebrew today, whereas a hundred years ago, there was essentially not, well, depending on when you count a hundred years ago, a hundred and thirty years ago, there was not a single one. No one was a native speaker of Hebrew. So that's actually astonishing. Uh, and it's, in, in the history of languages, it's pretty much unparalleled to revive a language that, that way, to go from zero to 60 so quickly, not in some sort of experimental way, you have some you know, weird group of 20 people, but actually an entire country that functions in, in that language. So we don't have time to go through too much of this, but I just want to draw your attention to a, one further debate here. Just one point, which is one, one reason for that was that there was an active renunciation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, 100%. So, so this comes really, um, comes really from, uh, from this school of thought uh, that's, that sort of goes under the umbrella category of cultural Zionism. Again, 120 years ago, this was an important debate. Political Zionism versus cultural Zionism. These are not mutually exclusive. There's no reason we can't have and fight for both. But 120 years ago, there was limited Zionist energy in the world, and there was a real fight as to which one was the cause that we were fighting for. Are we fighting for a political state, or are we fighting for a cultural entity? And the two major flag bearers were Herzl on the political side, and Achad Ha'am, uh, Asher Ginsburg, on the cultural side. So you have some excerpts from them on page three. Uh, I'm not going to read them now, because we have only about ten minutes left. Um, so, I'll just summarize the key point here. Herzl, Herzl wrote two major books that are, uh, that are relevant for his thinking about Zionism. Um, back in his book, The Jewish State, um, he describes, and this is a non-fiction book, right? He describes actually what he thinks the state will look like. Um, later on, he wrote a novel, which is sort of this thin, thinly veiled blueprint for the Jewish state, uh, called At Neuland, Old New Land. In both of them, he broaches the subject of language. In the Jewish state, he explicitly talks about it. And you can read it yourself, but he says essentially, I assume that everyone will simply continue to speak whatever language they grew up speaking. So those who come to the new country from Russia will speak Russian, if you come from Germany, you'll speak German, if you come from France, you'll speak right? and so on and so forth. And he says, look, this is like Switzerland. There'll just be a, a, a federalism of, of languages. Everyone will speak whatever language they want. And there won't be an official language. And in his diary, he actually says, I assume that the official language will be German. <laughs> because coming from late 19th century, early 20th century, he died very early 20th century, uh, Europe, that, that could be plausibly seen as the language of the highest culture, central, geographically central, culturally, uh, the, uh, the, the powerhouse. to disagree. What you say? The French. Would the French would <laughs> Remember that he's from Vienna. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's not an implausible choice, right? It's true. You could, you could argue. But there are only a couple of languages that you could argue about, and he, he went with German. So fine. Then in his novel, Alt Neuland, he never, it's sort of like biblical narrative, like we mentioned earlier, he never says what languages the conversation they're taking place in. People are going around and talking, but he never says they're talking in French, they're talking in Hebrew. And Achad Ha'am, 
latched onto this. This was not new. He didn't, he didn't have to think hard to realize that Herzl wasn't so interested in the Hebrew language. Herzl, we should point out, if, uh, remember, at the first Zionist Congress, he actually writes in his diary that he was far more nervous about reciting Berkata Torah when he was going to get an Aliyah, which he never, I don't know if he ever did before, but uh, he certainly was not used to doing, but he had to recite the bracha in Hebrew, far more nervous about that than about the keynote address that he was going to address hundreds of delegates from all around the world that he had just managed to bring to Vienna for a Zionist Congress. So that one line in Hebrew, this was not, not his forte. So Chad Ha'am doesn't have to think hard about this and, and writes a pretty vicious review of Alt-Neuland, which he published in Hebrew, in his own journal, and he published in German um, to make sure that everyone saw it, including Herzl, who can't read Hebrew. And, uh, and he mocks the fact that there's no language in this country, that everyone seems to be just emulating Europeans. So there's, there's operas, and uh, well, there's a scene in the, in the novel where the, uh, the hero, the two heroes, are not able to access the opera. They can't actually get into the opera because they don't have white gloves. So they have to go purchase white gloves. And Akhara'am's like, this is ridiculous. We have a whole new country and you're worried about white gloves, but you're not worried about what language. You're not worried about the culture. You're not worried about actually, actually speaking the language. So the last paragraph on page three, you see the people of the village greet the guests. Ooh, my typo. Greet the guests. Hey, Dad! This is the first time since we arrived in Al-Noilan that a Hebrew word reaches our ears. But this first word is also the last word we hear from the villagers. <laughs> All the conversations and speeches of the leaders which you hear are in Yiddish or pu- pure German. <coughs> Apparently, Hebrew is used in Alt-Neuland, as in the diaspora, only for prayers and blessings. Right? So Hebrew is a liturgical language, but it's not a practical language. And for Achad Ha'am, this made no sense. The whole point for him of building a new country was to build a country that could serve as a a, an engine of Jewish culture. He actually was not concerned about anti-Semitism and the fate of the Jews in Europe. And that was a major failing on his part. He just didn't realize that things were not going to go well. Um, so Haram, you know, he was great on the cultural side. He didn't get the political side. Um, but, uh, but he did see that, the, that if we're going to have a country, it's got to be an engine for Jewish culture. And if there's going to be Jewish culture being produced, you have to have some language. Let me just add one thing. Let's go back to Rabbi Schneerson. Rabbi Schneerson, when would he ever have spoken the Hebrew? Yes, uh, prayers. prayers and blessings. And yet he writes in Hebrew, right? And he has no trouble writing in Hebrew. He can, he can write whole letters in Hebrew. He writes books in Hebrew. Because people like to say that Hebrew was a dead language. But it was dead in the sense that no one spoke it on a day-to-day basis in their homes. It was far from dead in the sense that, at least among Ashkenazi males, and you have to remember that Ashkenazim were 90% of the Jewish world population uh, until a century ago. Uh, so while I hate to focus only on the Ashkenazim, it's not unreasonable to use them as the, as the barometer. Among Ashkenazim in Eastern Europe, pretty much every male spent 10 years studying Jewish texts in Cheder. Now, had they ever had a conversation in Hebrew? Almost certainly not. No one ever asked them to. But if they needed to say, this, um, say something to, let's say, a Sephardi Jew, let's say they met an Iraqi Jew, what language could they converse in? So what did they do? We actually know what they did. They would fall back on their book Hebrew. 
right? Their literary Hebrew is suddenly pressed into use. Now, some people can do that well, some people can't do that well. But uh, what's uh, I know, a fascinating example is that Ben Yehuda, who of course is the first one to explicitly not allow his children to hear any language other than Hebrew, Ben Yehuda moves to Palestine and all of his conversations are in Hebrew because all of the Middle Eastern Jews are used to conversing with the European Jews in Hebrew. Now, they all go back home and speak Arabic or German or French or whatever language they speak, Russian in his case. Um, so it's not that it's a living language in that sense. He's the first one to actually create a family who converses around the table in Hebrew. That's an ama- astounding accomplishment. But he's not the first person to have a conversation in Hebrew. That was going on all the time. And in a large sense, that's what Rosenzweig means. What does it mean that there was a Jewish people in the 19th century? It means that they have some sort of common language. Now, that has to start actually literally with the language. Of course, it transcends just mere language. Common language also means we have common things to talk about. So there's the Torah, there's Halakha, there's all sorts of other things to talk about. But it literally starts with the language. And if you want to talk about world Jewry even before Zionism, a lot of it has to do with the fact that at least anyone who was educated, which meant, to be honest, basically males, could converse in Hebrew if they needed to. They would sound, to our ears, stilted and old-fashioned. They would be pulling phrases out of, out of the Bible, out of the Gemara, out of the Mishnah, uh, but they could actually have a conversation. Ben Yehuda is so excited when his wife is walking around Palestine and says, Maya hamakom hazeh. And he says, this is the moment. And what's so, what's so important about that? <coughs> First of all, it's a woman. That was not the norm. Women typically were not educated in Jewish texts and therefore could not have these conversations in Hebrew. And second of all, it's totally mundane. This is actually just a comment on the garden that they happen to be passing by. And she's able to say, wow, what a lovely garden. And he says, okay, we're, we're getting there. This is becoming a normal language. All right, we're, uh, we're totally short on time. So let me, let me skip to America. And um, uh, let's, uh, let's just think about this together for a moment. So if you're right, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. What's your name? Ellen. Ellen. So Ellen says, look, at least some segments of American Jewish uh, schools, education system, are doing a fine job. They can't speak Hebrew, but they can, just like those Jews 150 years ago, they can read Hebrew texts, they can study. <laughs> so, I don't know your name. Literature, how about, how about reading novels in Hebrew? Well, it's okay. It's very restricted. Look, like, obviously 150 years ago, no one you no, know, no know. was doing that either. No, they don't right. I think it's uh, I think it's pretty erratic. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to uh, survey right now who has what experiences, but uh, but clearly some schools do a very good job. Uh, I know Flatbush was my uh, my alma mater as well, um, and Flatbush at least you know, at least in the past. Yeah, has done a has traditionally done a very very good job, taken very seriously. But that's actually the key point. So I can I can speak as a parent of a, we have a daughter in high school and a son who's finishing eighth grade, and some schools uh, it's and this goes to the gentleman's point. I don't know your name. Um, My name is Shmuel. Shmuel. Uh, many schools have actually simply taken it off of the top of the agenda. 
It's just not considered to be centrally important. And you said something almost under your breath a, a minute ago uh, about art school. And art school is, on the one hand, a revolution that has to be just awe-inspiring. It has opened up traditional Jewish texts to thousands and thousands, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds, I don't know how to count, quantify it, but, but staggering numbers of Jews who otherwise would not have access, especially, especially Talmud. Uh, just, I mean, I don't, I don't know numbers. Maybe someone has surveyed, but, uh, but staggering numbers of people who can open up a Talmud and read in a way that the Talmud has been a closed book for the vast majority of Jews for the last 1,500 years. Maybe intentionally so, uh, but, uh, but it certainly has been closed. So it's opened up the text in a way that is, is just awe-inspiring. On the other hand, it certainly has created a sense among a lot of people, and I say this, it's the flip side of the coin, so I don't know how to navigate this. But the flip side is, we don't need to, to be those elite people who have access to Jewish texts anymore in the original languages, because you can just read the translation. And now, of course, it's an app. You have the Safari website. These things are all amazing things. And I, I certainly don't want to be uh, misunderstood as saying that these are unfortunate developments in Jewish history. They're incredibly fortunate events in Jewish history. They're just also a deep educational challenge because many of the people growing up today, especially, literally have no immediate reason why they should be able to read Hebrew. Everything has been translated. Right? So Rosenzweig actually was really into translation. But Rosenzweig was an interesting translator. He, he wanted to translate into a German that would sound Hebrew. That's what he <laughs> writes. And the point was that any German reader would read his German and say, I must not be getting something. Let me go back to the Hebrew. Right? Now, how well that worked is, is a different question. But his point of translation was actually to draw people in so that they would then continue on to the original. We have translations that are so good that they easily replace the original. And I do worry about this. Now, this is fine for a generation or two. Because if everyone is learning Talmud in translation, then that's an amazing Jewish culture. I mean, everyone will know Talmud. That's, that's amazing. Uh, the question is whether it's sustainable. The question is whether people who learn in translation can really participate in that culture. If you're, if you're absorbing things in English, does it feel like this is Jewish culture? Or does it feel like... You know, I read, uh, I read English novels, I read high literature, and I read Talmud, and they're all essentially the same type of reading, type of study. I read Thomas Mann in English. <laughs> Thomas Mann in English, right, exactly. Exactly, which of course we do, right? I mean, yes. who's going to read, learn German? Just to read. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. We're not going to cut ourselves off from all the greats of world literature just because they happen not to be in English, so Talmud also. But, um, but it, I, I, do, I do wonder whether this is a sustainable aspect of our culture, and, or more, more precisely, I would say, I think we have to figure out how to make sure that American Jewish culture doesn't become just a translation culture. Because translation culture is actually, we have a few in history, and they haven't done so well. It's the ones that have done well are the ones who are engaged with Hebrew. So that's my, that's my concern. Obviously, again, it's the flip side of how well we've done. Right. One of the reasons we're able to do such amazing English translations is because the American Jewish community has done so well in America. Some of it comes down to money. Right? I mean, it's, it's just not possible to, to fund hundreds of people translating the Talmud all day if you don't have a lot of money behind such a project. And some of it comes down to cultural interest. You also wouldn't do it if you don't have thousands of people who actually want to learn the Talmud but don't have access to the original. 
So all of those things are, are fantastically exciting and positive developments, and yet also, to my mind at least, somewhat worrying in the longer run. 